You're listening to the Rabbit Room Podcast. Visit us at rabbitroom.com for more information. This is Pete Peterson. You're listening to the Rabbit Room Podcast. I'm here today with Mr. John Barber, and we are going to talk about a couple of war movies um, that have been out in the theaters for a while now. And I think we're going to start with The War for the Planet of the Apes, which I would let me go ahead and say this is one of those movies that was going to have to try really, really hard to fail for me because I'm such a huge fan of the other two. And if it had failed, I would have wept on the way out of the theater because I would have been so disappointed. So thankfully, it wasn't disappointment for me. What was your initial reaction, John? The first thing I thought when I walked out of the theater was, I can't remember another film trilogy that gets better with every episode. I can't, and I still can't think of another one. And uh, this one does. It's in my, for me, it's the best of the three, and it's it's just wonderful. Yeah, I kind of good. I do go back and forth on whether I think this one or the second one is a better movie. But there's no doubt that like this is the other than like. Well, even Return of the King, like even though I love the way that it lands that story, it's not a great movie, like taken on its own. Whereas this is just a great movie and it perfectly lands the trilogy. So like even if I don't think it is quite as good a movie as the second one, and I'm not sure if I think that or not. Like, that is minor criticism at best. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, it's picking your favorite one of these movies is, it probably depends on the day and your mood. Yeah. Like, for, for me, they're they're all enormously successful. They're, they they just all work so well. They're, when, the, when this was announced that this was going to be a franchise, the general reaction was, this is insane. We just saw Tim Burton's take on this, and it was terrible. Why are we doing it again? And then these beautiful things happen. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, this is why science fiction exists, these yep. movies. Um, yep. Uh, fantastic. And part of what I loved about this third movie, though, it, it, it's different from the others in that the third movie feels like, like I, I really liken it to J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, uh, Cauldron of Story idea. Like, J.R.R. Tolkien has this idea that all throughout history, humans have been telling stories, and every time they do, they're adding it into the cauldron of story. And any time a new storyteller comes along, like he's dipping his ladle into that cauldron and pulling out a new mix of stuff. And uh, so I've heard, you know, there's been some criticism of this third movie saying, oh, you know, it, it was just a remake of that movie and a remake of this movie. And there's nothing original about it. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Like, you don't understand how stories work if that's what you think. Um, just because I can look at it and pick out its influences, like the Bridge Over the River Kwai and Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, the Great Escape and all these things doesn't mean that it's not an original new movie because what you know the director and the writers have done is they've dipped into the cauldron of film and pulled out this thing that's a whole new mix of these flavors that we love and that makes it taste so good. Yeah, uh, it does. There, there are times when uh, we, we call this we open by calling this a war film and it's called a war film in the title and that's true but it's also a number of other things. The the, the whole last third of the movie is as much a prison escape flick it's it's more the great escape than it is apocalypse now and so it's one of these films that trying to pigeonhole it in any kind of way it's just slippery it it slips through all those definitions and it's con it constantly surprises you every time it takes a turn it's doing something different yeah yeah it's been it was such a pleasure this has actually happened a couple of times this year i think such a pleasure to go to the movies and watch a film 
that constantly surprises you and you don't know what's going to happen next. Like, I didn't know, like, any character in that movie could have died and it would have been, it would not have stopped the story, you know? Uh, anything could have happened and, and I can imagine the narrative keeping on going, which is what you don't get when you're watching something like The Fast and the Furious, you know, if Dom dies in the middle of the movie, you just know that's not going to happen. You know what I mean? So, like, in all of these movies, I felt like they're fresh and inventive and exciting enough that uh, the narrative had enough forward motion that anything could have happened and it wouldn't have stopped the film. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The the Maybe the one exception of that, of course, is Caesar's character. And what a vehicle this is for Andy Serkis. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I don't know that award shows or the Academy or whatever will ever recognize this kind of motion capture performance in any kind of meaningful way. But... I I can't say I've seen a better performance this year. Yeah, it's amazing. I feel like like I get all the complications around giving an, an Oscar to somebody for a motion capture performance. You know, there's great arguments for it, and I, I totally understand all that. But I kind of feel with this, like I felt about Return of the King. Like Return of the King won the Best Picture Oscar, and it was not the Best Picture. But it was kind of like an endorsement of, look, you've created this enormous thing over the last few years and we're kind of giving this one the award to acknowledge the whole creation and i kind of feel like that's what circus deserves here i get that maybe you don't want to give him a best actor uh nomination or award for this movie because of the complications around motion capture but like when you take the body of work that he's done in these movies like as an actor it's phenomenal it's like I, I don't know what you would pick that would match it. Well, the only thing that would come close is his work in Lord of the Rings. Right. Which he also didn't get recognized for. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. Anyway, he's, he's just absolutely amazing. And it's also amazing that um, in this film, you essentially have one human actor. I mean, you have some right. of the other little bit soldiers, but for all intents and purposes, you have one human actor. And so for like two and a half hours, you're completely engaged in what's essentially a cartoon but you're fooled into thinking it's real, which is remarkable. And then on top of that, like not only are there no human actors, but they don't speak. Like there's only really two speaking parts in the movie, Caesar and the Colonel. I mean, yeah, there are other things said by bit characters, but for the most part, nobody else speaks. It's all sign language and visual storytelling, which is amazing. Yeah. uh, You mentioned the Colonel and uh, that's Woody Harrelson's character. Um, And he is, when it comes to the apocalypse now comparisons um i think if you can criticize the movie for anything it's probably it's probably harrelson and the and the sort of odd subplot of the strange sickness that's happening which felt to me a little bit out of place and unnecessary oh dude i loved that i i get it but like if that were lifted out of the story i'm not sure anything changes no, I think it does. It's, a, I mean, thematically, it's about you know the de the de evolution of the human race. At the same time that we're seeing the rise of the apes, men are actually suffering the consequences of their own tinkerings with nature, and the result of that is that they are being removed from the food chain by by nature. Which, in you know, the ultimate uh, outworking of that happens in the end of the movie when they are literally judged by nature. Well, that's so. That's the question here, right? That's the big, the big question of the movie. I think is how does how is how is history moved by individual actions, and how much of history is fatalistic? How much, how much does nature just 
take its course and then how much on, on you know on Caesar's side how much do his actions affect the course of of the big story because this is a big story and the one influence that we haven't mentioned here yet is the bible which is right all through this movie <laughs> yeah and in ways that are subtle i don't want to spoil anything but like, there's a moment at the end of the movie like very clearly is paralleling Mo- the story of moses I don't know how to say it without ruining yeah. it. You know what I'm talking about? Like there's a I, thing that happens exactly. at the end of Mo- Moses' life that, you know, might seem unfair, you know, the first time you read scripture until you realize what's going on. And yep. uh, that happens in this movie. And like, that's not the type of thing that, or it's a subtle enough biblical reference that it makes you rec- appreciate the fact that whoever wrote it was really like paying attention to scripture, not just going, oh, you know, let's do Moses. Like they were actually reading the story of Moses or familiar with it, which I really appreciated. And it was not cheesy at all. It was perfect. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it worked super well for me. It leaves, when you leave the theater, there's a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth because of... What? Well, just a tiny one because of the unfairness of that thing. What What feels oh. a tiny bit unfair like it feels a little you've you've become so attached to these characters which like you said we're, we're talking essentially about cartoons here but you've become so attached to these characters that when this one thing happens it feels you maybe bad taste is not the word maybe just sad maybe it's definitely you feel sad. sad yeah but appropriately so because like it was a, yes. it was the result of uh his own actions Yeah, just like the only way it could have ended. Yeah, it's the only way it could have happened. And then I also did have the like you know some people will point out that oh there's a big Deus ex machina literally kind of that happens at the end, and is that a cop out or is it fair? And like that's actually a good question in in story terms because I think it it works in the movie. Like it's not a cop out. It's not a Deus ex machina where something just sweeps in and solves all the problems for the characters. That's not what's going on. But like, if you're interested in how stories work, it's a good exercise, I think, to explore why. And I don't know if we want to go into that just because it's a spoiler in the movie that I would hate. I didn't see it coming. I didn't know it was going to happen. And I really hesitate to spoil that for other people. But but I, I will just say that I think uh, it, it was thematically set up. It didn't solve all the problems. The characters had kind of already solved their problems. And this was almost just a blessing of that. I would but say it, it was in, in regard... Yeah, in regards to that scene, um, I wouldn't call it a deus ex machina. It kind of feels like one, but that particular thing, I hate that we have to dance around this stuff, but um, that particular thing is caused directly by the actions of what's happening on the screen. Right. It's It's not out of nowhere. Right. And it's... It's sort of a it's a very um, active sort of an anti-war kind of statement when yeah. it happens. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's a it's a statement about this is what happens or this is what can happen when you're so concerned with defeating the bad guys. And yeah, I don't want to say any more because again, yeah. I'd give it away. But um, but I I don't find it to be a Deus Ex Machina. It feels like one because it feels like how one would function in a lesser story. But in this story, I don't think it does. Well, I think it is. It's just the it's it's an instance in which it's done properly, and and therefore it doesn't undercut the movie. It actually um, enhances the movie. Yeah, agreed. Uh, there was something else I was just about to say. Well, uh, it was uh, oh another thing that I really impressed me with this is especially in the era of modern filmmaking that 
the way that sequels usually work is okay. A perfect example is the pirates of the Caribbean movies. Like yeah. each sequel has to outdo the last one. It's got to have more and bigger action and bigger set pieces and more conflict. And, you know, it just, and what, you, what happens is as they go, they, they strain under the weight of all that stuff and cease to become good stories. And so that happened with the first two Apes movies. The second one clearly outdid the first one. And then I had the fear going into this one. It's called, after all, The War of the Planet of the Apes. And the expectation was there that this is going to outdo the second one and be a bigger, more war-oriented, like, big action movie. And I was a little like, oh, man, I hope it just doesn't descend into a bunch of explosions. And so, like, I was completely delighted by what a quiet movie it is, for the most part. Like, it is not a big action movie. It has, you know, it's big action moments. But in a lot of ways, I think it's a quieter movie than the second one. Yeah, I mean, again, the, you can't avoid an Apocalypse Now comparison with this movie, but Apocalypse Now functions very much the same way. Sure. You think you think about Apocalypse Now, and there's hardly any actual fighting and explosions in that movie. Yeah. Most of it is Martin Sheen going from place to place, and that's a lot of War of the Planet of the Apes is, or for the Planet of the Apes is, there's a whole lot of scenes of them uh, moving through the mountains or riding their horses to get to somewhere else. And the dialogue, what little, little dialogue there is, is impactful. And the interactions they have with the people they meet along the way are impactful. And there's there's one character that's a, that's a young human girl that functions kind of as the bridge between the people and the apes. And her character is able to thrive in those quiet times when there's not stuff blowing up all the time. Yeah. It's a great war movie. It's a great war movie. Yeah. Or I should say anti-war movie, maybe. Uh, let's move on to Dunkirk now. And then after we talk about Dunkirk, let's let's come back and discuss which one we think is a better war movie. I know okay. I know which one I think is. and uh, I know which one you think <laughs> is, too. So uh, why don't you start with Dunkirk? Uh, so Dunkirk is the movie probably that I was the most excited about of all of 2017. It was the film that I was looking forward to the most when I found out that it was going to be played in 70 millimeter here in Knoxville. We bought our tickets early and we made it to a, an afternoon showing because not only do I do I really like Nolan's films, I was excited to see how he could handle a subject that wasn't fantastical it wasn't interstellar and it wasn't inception but it was a historical event now i don't i didn't know much about the events of dunkirk going in i do now because like most people after the film i sat down and read a ton about it but for me dunkirk the film is it's a tough one because when i walked out of the theater i said that was amazing and i'm not sure if i liked it which I think is a lot of people's reaction to, to the movie. Now, as the farther away I get from it, the more I like it, the, the more it's risen in my estimation. I don't know if that's huh. true for you. Yeah, I was equally uh, excited about seeing it. And I love Christopher Nolan's filmmaking in general. I hate Interstellar. But uh, yeah, I knew the Dunkirk story and I was really excited to see somebody put it on film. I was kind of amazed that it's never been done before. And so it was frustrating to me. It was a really frustrating movie. Like, it is a technical masterpiece. I don't think, however, that it is in any way an artistic masterpiece. So what I mean by that is I feel like the, the technical expertise with which uh, the world is built 
with which uh, the the shots are put together, which the with which it's edited, all that stuff functions really well technically. It looks great, uh, but where I struggle is uh, the, the number one thing is is the dramatic structure of it, right. which I spent half the movie just trying to figure out what the structure was. Because it is not, it was basically filmed in three different timelines that are all of different lengths. So, like one timeline is the, is the pilot timeline, and his whole story takes place over the course of one hour. And then there's uh, somebody else's timeline, and it takes place over the course of like one day. And then there's a third one that takes place over the course of a week. And then all these individual, these three individual timelines are all intercut, so that you're cutting from the one-hour timeline to the one-week timeline and back again. And over the course of the movie, you gradually see where they intersect and come together at the end. Right. The problem is none of that was clear. Like, when it opens up, you know, it gives you some title cards, you know, to try to clue you into what's going on. But they're not clear. And I'm, and it's really cognitively hard to follow what's happening in the movie because well, not only because of the timelines but because of uh i couldn't tell actors apart like mm-hmm. the two uh the two pilots you know for the most of the thing they have their masks on and yep. by, by the eyes behind the goggles i can't tell which one's tom hardy and which one's the other one uh the the soldiers on the beach like they looked similar uh i couldn't tell sometimes i was like is this in the past is this in the future i don't know what's going on now having said all that you can certainly make an argument for the fact that uh, one of the goals often in making a war movie is chaos and confusion, like wanting to depict that for the audience. And I get that, but it doesn't work if I can't follow the narrative. And that's my problem with the movie. Like, I didn't enjoy watching it. I didn't, I very often didn't understand what I was seeing and how it fit into the big picture. Uh, and then on top of that, I didn't feel like there was very much visual poetry happening. And what I mean by that is cinematic language. Like the shot is beautiful. There are beautiful shots, beautiful scenes in this, but there's not, there's very rarely much being communicated through the shots other than, hey, this is what's happening. Uh, and, there, you know, it's not across the board. Like, it's got some beautiful opening shots. It's got some beautiful ending shots. But in the middle, it's just confusing shots that aren't working for me. I just talk, so, I just blabbed a whole lot. Sorry about that. So I'm going to, like, tell me what your response to that is. Yeah. So I, while I agree with you that the, the, the timeline structure is confusing, and I'm glad we're laying this out for maybe somebody that hasn't seen the movie yet, because I wish somebody had told me before I went in that at the very beginning of the movie, you get three title cards, and they are the three locations, the mole, the sea, and the air. And those are our three timelines. And if you don't know, which I didn't, and I'm Pete, you probably didn't either. The mole is the bridge that kind of jet, juts out into the ocean and that you see a number of times in the movie. That's right. what that's referring to. Which is another, so, if I can just interrupt real quickly, yeah, it was another yeah. point of confusion for me because yep. I don't know what the mole is. And Correct. I kind of assumed that, okay, it must be this bridge or this beach or something. But then you start with this character who I was wondering, is he a German that's infiltrating the, mm-hmm. the English and and okay, so is he the mole? And right. I'm not entirely sure that, that confusion was intentional. Well, I, I think it's ultimately it's a really British film, and that's part of it. That that language, that little language bit, is part of it. 
As for the narrative structure itself, it didn't bother me as much as it bothered you. It took me a few minutes to get my bearings, but once I did, and where it really strikes you is when we go from day to night, sort of in between shots, and all of a sudden there's soldiers jumping off a capsizing ship at night when just a second before Tom Hardy was flying through uh, the sky and it was bright daylight. And just let me say, like when that happened... I had still, at that point in the movie, not figured out what was going on with the timelines. Yeah. And yeah. and part of me was like, are they just not caring that yeah. it's that it's going from day to night? Are, are we yeah. not supposed to notice that? And I leaned over and asked my wife. And she said, well, I think maybe it's just because the, the stuff in the water is like further east. So it's already nighttime there. Oh, <laughs> So like, which is, my wife is brilliant, okay? And the fact that yep. she was also confused, it yep. just reinforces my opinion that this is not... A good way to structure your movie like you're losing your audience and when that happens uh, like I blame the filmmaker for that it, it, you know because your job as a filmmaker is not to be aloof from your audience your job as a filmmaker is to communicate and uh, if you're failing to do that then I think my estimation of your work in the film is lessened yeah I don't I don't think it's a failure of the structure itself I, I think it's a failure of the communication of how the structure works at the beginning of the movie right um, it Editorial feels to me problems. like yes like a simple some kind of simple nod to these things at the beginning of the movie probably would have fixed it for everybody right. now again it didn't it didn't bother me as much as it bothered you and once I got the hang of it it kind of it was kind of exhilarating to go back and forth um, now when it comes to the other things you mentioned like the uh, you had a hard time ca- telling the characters apart to me that's a strength of the movie because for Dunkirk which is not a happy story it's not it's not a traditional war film that ends in victory it's a story about survival first like first and foremost it's about people trying to just make it off this beach alive that's what the movie is about and the fact that you couldn't tell them apart really lent toward this anonymity of all of these characters we don't get their backstories we don't know anything about them they're all kind of the same person in in a lot of ways and so for me it was we could be telling the story of any one of these soldiers and that and that worked to to create this this mass of troops trying to save themselves okay so here's my reaction to that i think all that sounds good on paper i think uh when they were in pre-production with the script somebody pitched this idea and it's like yeah this sounds great this sounds like a really fresh way to do a war story we're going to play against type and kind of deconstruct it and you know strip it down to its bare bones and all that and that all sounds good and had it worked i would have been in its corner but i don't think it worked and why is because it robbed me of the opportunity to care about anybody because we didn't get a hint of anybody's backstory. Like, I don't need yep. a fully fleshed backstory. All I need is a character that I care about. And yep. uh, the only hint of that is the guy, the civilians on the boat. The, yeah, Mark Rylance. Yeah, the, the, the soldiers. Yep. Like, I just I didn't know enough about these people to care anything about what they were doing. And. Like honestly, I just couldn't wait for it to be over. Sometimes I just, <laughs> I just like, are, are we almost done? <laughs> I, the the dogfighting was great. I love the dogfighting. I thought the ending was beautiful in a lot of ways. Like the where you finally did get some visual poetry of Tom Hardy landing the plane. I thought that was a great kind of a thematic metaphor for not giving up and landing it in the same way that 
the soldiers on the beach were not getting up and the soldiers or the civilians coming were not giving up. They were going to play it out to the end and try to save everybody. And that was kind of reflected in the way that that, that plane landed on the beach. But yeah, I mean, okay. So, the, and here's my, here's my final criticism, I think, is that they say in the movie that there are 400,000 men on the beach. Right. And that to get 400,000 men off the beach takes thousands of civilian ships. Right. And if I didn't have any idea about the scope of this story, I would have thought it was about one fisherman who went and saved 10 soldiers. And I think that's a disservice to history on Nolan's part. You know, he he, he went out of his way to like capture these amazing dogfights and these amazing ships capsizing and all that. But like, never do I get a, a sense of the scope of what is happening, which is really important. Uh, see, here's where I, I think maybe this is a foundational thing where you and I are going to disagree. Um, that to me is maybe the biggest strength of the movie, which is it's an unconventional war movie, just like War for the Planet of the Apes was an unconventional war movie. That's not about the big. In this case, it's not about the large event. It's about three smallish well one big story one sort of medium story and then one very small story which also lends toward the narrative structure to me focusing on these individuals these basically three main individuals is the strength of the movie it's what i loved about it most it's that it's not a story about this enormous battle that's not what that's not the point of the movie but that's Uh, not true this is where i disagree like the point of the movie is the amazing uh, miraculous thing that happened at Dunkirk. So like I'm all for like zeroing in on three small stories within that bigger one, but you've got to at least show me the bigger one so that I understand the context for which, for why you're telling me about these small stories. And that's what I feel like I get happen. Yeah. I guess I got that at the end. I guess I got enough of that at the end of the movie when they're, they're going back home um, on the trains. To me, that was, that was enough of that. I, I never once had the feeling that I needed bigger sweeping shots of the beach or a, a huge drone shot of all of the boats. I mean, we did see hundreds of boats in the water. I don't know that we saw thousands. I, I don't know. I guess I guess we're going to disagree on that because I felt like I got plenty of, of context. Okay, so let me reel back my my critical fervor for a moment and say that there's no sense in which I think this is a bad movie. Right. It, it was a good movie. I would like to see it again just to see if my opinion of it changed at all. But I yeah. firmly believe this is not a great movie. Like if I made a list of my 10, the 10 greatest war films, this would not be among them. Well, that's that. I mean, to put it in a list of 10 greatest war films, I think is kind of an unfair way to, to approach a movie that just came out a month ago. I would, I would certainly put it in my top 10 of the year and I, for me, it's in the top two or three of Nolan's work. Maybe history will will tell a different story, and maybe twenty years from now we'll look back and we'll put it in a list of. Yeah, I have a feeling. Films. I don't know. I just I have a feeling nobody's going to remember this movie. Because- See, I don't. I don't agree at all. I think if I think we're going to be. I think classes, film class, will be teaching this movie fifty years from now. I think this is going to get the Criterion release the first day it possibly can. I think critics adore this movie. Um, I really liked it a whole lot. And in fact, I mean, you said you were going to ask which is one of the or which was the more successful war films. I think of the two we've talked about, I think you and I might have different answers. Yeah, well, 
for sure the the better film the better war film for me is the apes movie it, it's a movie that actually cared about its audience yeah i i, I would i certainly wouldn't agree with that statement but <laughs> I, I i liked them both a whole lot like it's like picking my my favorite ice cream flavor like i i liked them both a whole lot choosing between the two of them seems kind of unfair um, i think dunkirk is a better war movie i think i probably liked apes more if that makes sense yeah yeah interesting I really do need to watch Dunkirk again. The problem here's part of my problem. Like, even though I recognize that I, I should watch it again to give it another chance, there's yeah. nothing about me that looks forward to it. Like, it just seems exhausting to, to watch yes, it, it to watch it again because it's not interesting. It it is like my one big critique of the film is it is completely exhausting and and primarily through the sound design. Oh my gosh! Which, oh my gosh! That's another one. I could I wanted to tell somebody please turn the sound off like i think so i think is it did, was it zimmer howard zimmer that did, yeah, did the hans, score hans zimmer. hans zimmer hans zimmer yeah um i think he need like if he has any awards for scores they need to be taken away <laughs> like but here's why like that's the score in that movie is relentlessly sentimental it's relentless it, it, but but it's sentimental and what i mean by that is it's manipulative it's like if you go back and watch war war stories or war movies yeah. from the 80s like everything has this patriotic music going over the whole yep. thing to make you feel what's happening yep. on screen and he does exactly that same thing in this movie only he's got this music that's designed to make you feel tense when what's actually happening on the screen doesn't have enough power to make me feel tense because there's no narrative drive behind it and that all the way through the movie, it irritated the tar out of me that I was feeling tense, but I was aware that it was the music that was doing it, not the narrative. My biggest problem, and like to a person who I've talked to about this movie, they have the same issue, which is that the the, the thing was just too darn loud. Yeah. And I know that seems like maybe I'm just an old guy, but I never, ever, ever, ever go to a movie and think it's too loud. I always wish they would turn the thing up. But in Dunkirk, it was assaulting it was relentless and assaulting and maybe maybe that was nolan's point maybe that's what he was going for maybe that was in his instructions in the screenings was normally you turn these things up to 10 i want you to turn it up to 12 yeah and because of that in part like i could i think i missed probably 60 percent of all the dialogue in the movie well there's not very much right but anyway there's very little dialogue yeah but when it's happening like i wanted to know what people were saying i have no idea It was mumbled. Yeah. None of the pilot stuff. You can't understand any of that because it's muffled. And I can't um, wait till you see it again. I, I'd like for you need to go see it again just just so we can have a, a second conversation about it because I want to see it again and I'm really looking forward to seeing it again. All right. Well, if I watch it again, um, I would be happy to have a follow up conversation. Okay. And see if my okay. opinion has changed. And, okay. and again, I know I just came across really harsh on it, and yeah. and I think all my criticisms are valid, but I also want to reinforce the fact that i didn't think it was a bad movie like it, yeah. it's a good movie i did I I, but i really wanted it to be a great movie and i don't think it i think it missed the mark so speaking of great movies you saw valerian oh, as well, my, right? gosh. oh my valerian in the city of a thousand planets you, you saw this one correct this movie is exactly as good as i thought it was going to be <laughs> <laughs> that's not true it's worse it's way worse <laughs> Okay, so just uh, for some context, I think The Fifth Element is a horrible movie, and I oh, you ne- do? I love The I Fifth Element. I have never understood why anybody oh. would want to watch it. 
I love it so much. I was so excited about Valerian when I saw the trailers for it. I can't think of a single redeeming factor for the fifth element. And I think the Valerian uh, fulfills all <laughs> the... Uh, Horrible promise implied by the fifth element. <laughs> okay, I I really 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 liked the first third of Valerian. What? The, there's a scene the the scene in the in the big market with the going between the dimension stuff. I thought it was super cool. It made no sense. I loved it. I, I adored it. I thought it was fun. I thought it was unique. I I really liked it. But let, let me say this: uh, it's a terrible movie. It's one. Of, it's like, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. It's not. It's in no way good. There's some cool visual stuff, and like I said, I liked that one part a lot. But the the story itself is. Oh my gosh! It's almost nonsensical. The dialogue. The dialogue is ridiculous. And Dane DeHaan, who I like as an actor, he plays the lead. He plays Valerian. I don't know if he was directed to do a Keanu Reeves impression the whole movie. Oh man! But. That's exactly what he's doing. I've he never seen him before, and like I just thought, how has this guy got a job? <laughs> like this is unbelievably bad, and the chemistry between he, him, and the girl yeah. is just yeah. so not there, so ridiculous. Oh, there is nothing. I can't think of a single good thing about this movie. I mean, it did look amazing sometimes. Yeah. Well, okay. Here's a good yeah. thing. The the like prologue. Where it, it, yep. it talks like the history of the world is yep. is pretty cool, super cool. Yeah, yep. I was totally in. Five minutes in, yeah, I was like, dude, this is great. The whole building of the space station and how it turns into this big yeah. city and all that stuff. And then the scene on the on the kind of beach world, I thought was inventive and and fake looking. Vi- yeah, but it was okay. And then I liked the, like I said, I liked the the big market scene. And then um, and then and then people started dives well, in. Sorry. And then people started wearing jellyfish on their heads. People started wearing jellyfish on their heads. Once it dives into the sort of the story proper, it just falls yeah, completely. Apart. Nothing about but, it makes sense. So the, the but you know what? I had fun though. Like I, I, it's it's not a good movie. But oh my gosh, I was so I, maybe maybe I feel the same way about this that I do about the Fast and the Furious movies. Like I, <laughs> I have I have an affection for it, even though it's not a good movie. Yeah, I can't I can't conjure that affection. I just <laughs> like I saw it with Andrew and, and Aiden, his son, and yeah. I can't count how many times the three of us just looked at one another. Like, is this really <laughs> happening? Um, like the, the, this is what sums up the movie for me. This is this perfectly sums up the st- utter stupidity of this movie. The the bad guy is a general. I don't care about spoiling anything because that's no, fine. Yeah. yeah. So the bad guy is this general, and uh, when you get to the you know penultimate scene where they have their confrontation, yeah. like Valerian and and his, who's a major, and this guy is his superior officer, a general. Like they have it out and they yell at one another. And he says, how could you do all these terrible things? And it ends with him punching out his general, yep. right? And knocks him cold. So then the very next thing that happens is his partner says, oh, well, now we need to take this information to, you know, turn it in. And he says, I'm a soldier. I follow the rules. I can't do that. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, you just punched out your general. <laughs> And like, and there's no sense in which this is ironic or funny in the movie. It's just like the the scriptwriters didn't yep. even care that that scene made no sense. And anyway, like I was just kind of in the theater. I just had my hands in the air. Like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? It was so deeply stupid. 
Oh um, man, it's yeah. uh yeah, it was it was it was fun for me. I I loved and again it's, it's this is not going on Ethan Hawke's uh demo reel. Oh my for, gosh. Uh, for anything. That whole scene but, was so indulgent over the top and inappropriate. <laughs> Like it just went on and on, and like we're just looking at each other, like why? What is even happening right now? I know, right? I just it was it was kind of great. Like I, this is what happens. This is like, maybe there's a comparison to Nolan here. Like this is what happens when a director is given complete leeway to do whatever he wants, and because what happens in Valerian is it feels like Luc Besson was given total carte blanche. With no editing, with no, well, with no, he wasn't given, he wasn't given anything. It's an independent film. He financed it. He was the only person in charge. Yeah. Right. But that's what I mean. This is what happens. So you, every alien he could think of, every weird looking creature, every idea makes it in and it ends up just being a mess. Just a complete mess. And that's what's frustrating. It's like, it's, it's great to have a vibrant imagination, but when your job is storytelling, you need to serve your story before you serve your imagination. Yep. And uh, that's what's not happening. And it really irritates the tar out of me. I mean, that's what's wrong with George Lucas's prequels, you know? That's what's wrong with, you know, so many movies today. That's what was wrong, I think, with uh, Dunkirk. Is, you know, you're not serving the story, you're serving your vision of the story. Yeah. Which are two separate things. There you go. There you go. that's, That's a good place to wrap it up, I guess. I like it. I like it. For more information about the Rabbit Room and the Rabbit Room podcast, visit us at rabbitroom.com. Music composed and performed by Andrew Osinga from his album Solar Wind.